brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. If the world is ever to return to anything like normality, experts agree we need to find a vaccine for COVID-19 as soon as possible. On this week's Agenda with Stephen Cole, we examine the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine and consider when we might find that golden bullet. Joining me from Seoul to try and answer that and many other vaccine questions is Dr Jerome Kim. Uh, and Dr Kim is Director General of the International Vaccines Institute. Dr Kim, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little more about how a vaccine is created. Right. I, I think the first thing to remember is that, you know, vaccines are, are based on a concept that we learned um, from the natural history of infectious diseases. And, and, and that is that, by and large, for most of the diseases that, um, that we've developed vaccines for, if you get the natural infection, if you get measles or if you get mumps or German measles, typically for the rest of your life, once you recover, you'll be protected against that disease. So you're immune from reinfection. And really a vaccine does exactly that. By taking a small part of a virus or taking the virus itself and killing it with heat or, or formaldehyde, um, a, a, a vaccine developer can inject it into um, a human and create the same kind of defensive responses that the body makes when it's normally attacked by measles or mumps. And in doing that, um, the body generates these responses that are normally designed to rid the body of the infection. But instead, what those responses do is that they protect the individual against infection by the real virus or the real bacterium. It's not just about developing a vaccine, though, is it? It's all about distributing it, too. Right. So, you know, vaccines are developed in phases, um, and there are typically three phases that take five to ten years. And the first phase, we, it's, it's usually conducted in about 50 people or less. And it really is, looks to see whether the vaccine causes any um, safety signals or, or is associated with any um, bad side effects. We also look to see if the vaccine is kind of making the right protective responses, but the real goal of the first phase is to make sure the vaccine is safe. The second phase, we actually begin to look at the vaccine in what we call the target population. That is, what group of people are we going to use the vaccine in uh, eventually when, when we finally have a vaccine that's licensed and, and ready for use in humans? Phase three, we actually look to see if the, the vaccine is safe and effective. Does the vaccine protect against infection or disease? And then, after all of that is done, and usually, again, that's five to ten years, you take that entire package of data, of information, and sometimes it's 100,000 pieces of paper, and you take it to the MHRA in the UK or the FDA in the United States and give them all of that and say, we believe that vaccine protects. And the regulatory agency will look through all those documents and say, yes, we agree with you or no, we don't agree with you. Um, and if it's approved, then it goes to another group. Because, you know, just because you have a vaccine that's ready for marketing doesn't mean that doctors around the world are going to prescribe it. So you actually have to have another group that tells you, yes, we agree this vaccine is ready. You should use it. This is this is an incredibly long process, uh, how you've described it. Human trials have started in the UK. But is that significant? Does that mean we could have a vaccine sooner 
rather than later? Yes. So I, I think um, most people remember that in December of 2019, we knew absolutely nothing about this virus. And now we actually have a number of clinical trials going on in humans. And for vaccine development, now remember a process that normally lasts five to 10 years, to get the first vaccines into humans and the first one went into, um, into humans in the United States in March of, 20, of 2020. So three months after really the virus was described and sequenced, we actually were testing a vaccine in humans, and that is a remarkably short timeline. I mean, most people, when they describe this, use the word unprecedented. How quickly after the, that testing could it be applied to the general public? Ah, another very important question. So typically, when you're in the five to 10 year timeline, during the third phase, the final phase of testing, the company is usually building the manufacturing capacity. Because remember that in the end, a vaccine company is supposed to make money for its shareholders. So they don't want to have a, an approved vaccine sitting around waiting for the factory to be built. So typically, they're building that capacity while the trial is still going on, hoping that the vaccine will succeed. This is a little different. So remember that we've compressed the timeline from five to 10 years to maybe 12 to 18 months if everything works well. So that means that the people who are funding uh, the vaccine developers in this case will also have to help probably um, with the development of the manufacturing capacity to, to get these vaccines into humans quickly. And so that will happen uh, probably while in, during the final stage of testing They'll be looking at companies that could potentially make this vaccine for human use. And governments, of course, will be adding a lot of revenue. They will be paying for a lot of these tests because every government in the world wants to see a COVID-19 vaccine on the streets. Yes, every, every government does, but not all the governments have the means to do so. So, you know, maybe if you're the United States or China, you can put enough money into a company in order to get it to accelerate vaccine um, clinical development and then, you know, get the, the company to promise that when they have a vaccine, that you have the rights to the first, um, you know, so many millions of doses. The other countries in this world, um, you know, the UK is among them, uh, Norway, Germany, Japan, India, and others have joined an organization called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. The Wellcome Trust and the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have also contributed to CEPI. And the, the idea behind CEPI is, you know, Let's put together um, funding and collectively develop a vaccine so that for these outbreak diseases, which are very unpredictable, and, and of course, COVID-19 is the perfect example of one, um, we can accelerate vaccine clinical development. So we no longer have to wait five to 10 years. Maybe we can do it faster. And when we all succeed, then potentially we can all benefit. But how do you make sure that all the scientists are working together. I know the WHO is coordinating uh, the efforts, but as you say, there is a scramble. There's a race in China, the UK, the US, to take three examples uh, to find this vaccine. Uh, how, how do you coordinate so much science, uh, which is so widely distributed? I think that having a, a core funder like Accepi, um, uh, will mean that there is a group of, of countries and scientists who are looking at all the products that are that are funded, uh, potentially can compare the defensive responses that are developed. And in the end, do they want to test all nine of the vaccines that they currently are paying for, or do they want to pick the top two or the top three and take only those forward? And when they do that, are they going to look at the vaccines that look the most promising, 
or vaccines that are associated with big companies that can rapidly manufacture and scale up production. I mean, the, the choices that are that need to be made are ones uh, that have to be discussed. I mean, in a big company, if you were Merck or GSK uh, or you know, Johnson & Johnson, you, you might be able to do it all on your own. And, and typically, that's what the big companies do. But a lot of the groups that were chosen initially by CEPI and are faster are small biotech companies. The other part of this is that we all have to recognize that COVID-19 is, is a global pandemic. And until we can vaccinate enough people around the world and give more people the benefit of vaccination, then really it, the world will not be safe from COVID or the next pandemic virus. We have to work together in order to show that these vaccines work and then distribute the vaccine um, equitably with access to everyone. More than 100 vaccines are now at various stages of development and a handful of those already being trialled in humans. I spoke to Stephen Kistler at the Harvard School of Public Health and Evan H. Block from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine about the different therapies being used in the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Stephen, first, your research suggests that social distancing uh, on its own is likely to be insufficient to fight uh, COVID-19, doesn't it? Hi, yes, thanks for having me. And you're exactly right. Um, it seems that social distancing will allow us to prevent cases from overwhelming our critical care capacities within hospitals. But if we do stay on top of that and we don't have a treatment or we don't have a vaccine that becomes available, um, we'll have to be at that for a very long time before enough immunity builds up in the population for us to actually emerge from this pandemic. Could you have too much so social distancing? Would that be a bad thing? Well, from an epidemiological standpoint, I suppose not, um, if we're only paying attention to this particular illness. But of course, uh, social distancing comes along with all sorts of other costs that are social and economic. Um, and, you know, we've also heard reports of people who might be holding back from um, going to the hospital for other conditions, other severe conditions that they might have for fear of contracting COVID. Now, that might not be actually a, a social distancing-based phenomenon, but nevertheless, it's very clear that, uh, that social distancing can have lots of negative knock-on effects that we really need to be aware of. Uh, Evan Block, your research has been looking at the potential of COVID-19 plasma transfusions. Yeah. Now, um, that's a therapy technique that hasn't been used in the United States anyway for, for some considerable time. Can you tell us how it works? Sure. So it's, it's actually been used for, for over a century in, in different settings, both in the, in the context of, uh, of post-exposure prophylaxis as, as, as well as for treatment for, for diverse um, infectious diseases. So, you know, the premise is fairly simple. What's happening is, you know, un unlike vaccination, where one's really provoking um, an active immune response with, uh, with, with convalescent plasma, what, what one's doing is one's collecting plasma from someone who, is, who has recovered from the infection, develops antibodies, and then one transfers those, those antibodies passively, either through infusion or transfusion, um, into someone who has been exposed and is at risk of, of COVID-19 or um, who has active, active disease. Uh, Evan, though, is this feasible for the treatment of large numbers of people, um, treatment so on a global scale? So, so absolutely. So, you know, one, one of the advantages of, of convalescent plasma is that it's, it's readily scalable because one can uh, leverage existing, uh, pre-existing blood transfusion infrastructure or collection infrastructure 
both in, in high-income countries where most of the focus is at the moment, but also in, in, in low-middle-income countries where one can, can simply do this through, through whole blood collections. Are plasma transfusions a long-term solution or are, are they temporary? So that, that's a great question. I, I would see this really as a, as a temporizing measure uh, pending availability of, of, of more defined strategies such as you know, vaccine development uh, or hyperimmune globulin. Unfortunately, if, if one looks at the timeline to developments of those, one's, one's looking at months to, in the, in the context of vaccines, potentially years, um, you know, uh, you know, pending availability. So in the absence, Stephen, uh, of a vaccine, uh, is there still the argument then for uh, the herd immunity? Well, there is to some extent. Um, you know, if, if that immunity lasts long enough, then there is a scenario in which we could drive the number of cases of this illness low enough through herd immunity um, that then we could shift strategy and either either eliminate the virus um, similar to what we did with SARS um, or, or at least have it at low enough levels that other interventions like contact tracing um, become feasible again. Um, but of course, you know, at, at this point, what we need is as many different interventions and treatments um, as, as possible because every little bit helps here. Evan Block, that there's still an awful lot we don't know about COVID-19. Um, is it dangerous to start clinical trials uh, as they've started to do in China, US and UK when we know so little? Um, I think that there's sufficient data, you know, just looking at the, the convalescent plasma um, part of this, I think that there's sufficient data where uh, convalescent plasma has been used in, in China and Italy uh, and and um, through an expanded access program in, in the U.S., there's probably been over a thousand uh, transfusions to date. It seems to be, just looking at the, the safety signal, it seems to be relatively well tolerated, which is consistent, you know, historically when it has been used, it has been well tolerated. I can't say whether it's effective. Um, and if, if one looks at the trials which are, which are about to get underway, uh, it's targeting, you know, the whole spectrum of disease from... Uh, from post-exposure prophylaxis through early, you know, early disease, you know, outpatients, moderate disease, critically ill, um, as well as the pediatric population, although you know, comparatively less at, at, at risk. And so, through those trials, I, I think, you know, to answer your question, firstly, I, I think that there, there really are sufficient human data um, to support um, at least evaluation. I, you know, I can't speak to whether whether it will be effective you know obviously that that is that is definitely the the, the hope but but yes I, I do think that it is it is ready for for evaluation and that brings us to the end of another edition of the agenda you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher and spotify you can also find us on cgtn europe facebook twitter instagram and youtube The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. 
There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.